Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. This is episode number 48 with Nick Bobber from Icon and also Chiefs. We have a fantastic discussion in this one. It's probably one of the longer podcasts we've done and we cover so many different topics from the change of him being an esports team to a holding company to acquiring and merging with another team. We talk about the closure of Gfinity in Australia, what it might mean for the market and we do a really quick round the grounds and market wrap up on investments in Australian and global esports, issues with sponsorship and how that's tracking, influences in esports companies, proper use of LinkedIn and so many other topics. All of those topics are listed on bigesports.gg forward slash 48, the number 48, with the show notes and links to anything we've talked about today. This is one of my favorite podcasts. Nick is a great friend of mine and he's a very level-handed thinker and very honest when it comes to esports. I enjoyed it and I think you will too. Thanks for listening and we'll get straight into it in a second. Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up, enter the industry, or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going. If you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest, suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at bigesports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at bigesports underscore gg. Nick, down in sunny old Melbourne today. Welcome. How are you? Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. We've got a lot of listeners in London and California now who might not understand this, but for, for those listening, Nick comes from Brisbane, which is a, a few thousand Ks up north, and um, I believe you're in shorts and a T-shirt or shorts and a singlet yesterday. Down here today, it's it's like eight degrees. That's it. Yesterday in football shorts and a singlet, 24 degrees. And then, yeah, it's hoodie weather down here. Yeah, it's beautiful up in Queensland. I was, I was born up there. Um, we, we, we come from similar regions right up there. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's not too much esports action happening there. No. So you got to fly down to places like this. Yeah, unfortunately. Working on it, though. We'll get Queensland there one day. <laughs> I'll be moving up the exact <laughs> second that you do. So I guess we'll, we'll start this the same way that we do pretty much every podcast. Let me know a little bit about your history that's relevant in esports and gaming and what you're doing today. Yeah, cool. So I guess my journey started around 2007, back in the old days of Six Axis and Cybergamer, uh, playing, I guess, semi-professionally. <laughs> I'll use that pretty loosely uh, with Call of Duty, um, always running mm. teams um, and playing at the same time. And then I guess my progression from there was to, to, you know, owning a team and starting a business, um, you know, fast forward to today where, yeah, obviously we've created, you know, Icon and the Chiefs, which is, you know, our baby. Yeah, fantastic. So we had you on the podcast, it was probably two years ago now, I think, and we talked a little bit about um, some investor issues you had in the past, helping people to understand, because you were probably, besides Dave Harris investing in diables here you're probably number one or number two i think in the market in taking any sort of outside capital yeah correct yeah yeah so we talked a little bit about that and, and a bit where you were at that time with tate and mines but can you give me just a quick elevator summary right now as to where you are today because obviously you're not tainted anymore but you've got the same staff but you're doing something a bit different yeah so obviously you know we have acquired the chiefs um under the icon banner and that's off the back of you know uh you know a fair chunk of that came from the same investor group um, with a few additions now and obviously you know that the dynamic in terms of you know staff is still there it's still pretty much the same crew with obviously bringing on board the Chiefs guys as well um, 
But yeah, it's it's effectively still still the same setup, still running the esports teams, and then obviously Icon being that parent company as well. Do you find you have some of those teething issues with the merger, like everyone talks about in the you know traditional esports space? You know, people that are used to being the boss no longer the boss, or you know, do you really need to keep the two social managers? How do they work together if they're used to being solo? Um, no, I'll be pretty honest. It's been pretty smooth. Um, yeah. Obviously, yeah, going into it, I I thought there could be a few teething issues, but. It's been pretty smooth, and I think that's kind of because everyone's on the same page and pretty aligned in terms of goals and you know the vision for the company as well. So I guess for you, it, it turns from originally with Tainted Minds or Icon being the hands-on CEO helping to run the business, doing a lot of the biz dev, the sales, the day-to-day, but now you're sitting there with the parent company, with Frank, the CEO and founder of The Chief, sitting underneath you. How fundamentally does that change your day-to-day? Did you have to have a you know fundamental difference in the way you're thinking to operate um I, i'd say no i think we're like i said um our, our goal was to really bounce off each other um as opposed to like a, a strict hierarchy in terms of yeah i'm i sit above you kind of thing we, i'd say we're more of a i don't want to say joint role but um obviously ultimately you know the responsibility does lie with me at the end of the day as a, as a ceo um but from a like a decision point of view obviously you know, we've got all all the crew and the management um, have an equal voice, and that's always how we've operated from day one. Is that everyone has an equal voice, um, and any ideas or you know business plans that we want to put forward, it's done as a group as opposed to you know coming from just the top down. So mm. um, it's been pretty smooth in that regard. Yeah, it sounds almost like a co-CEO type role. Yeah, you know, I guess ESL's done that, and I think Fnatic did that as well for a while too. Yeah, within this market. And it's always been an interesting thinking exercise, I guess, for me. I wonder, always wondering what the dynamic's like when you've got kind of two people, you know, sitting, mum and dad sitting there alongside yeah. each other. Yeah, I, yeah, and I can see where people might draw that that parallel that it could be, you know, clashing of ideas. But, yeah, look, it's been super smooth. And I think when you've got a, a clear, you know, business plan and agenda of where you want the company to go, and obviously, you know, it's a, it was a long process to even get to that point. Mm. Um so a lot of the ideas and business plans that we did have were already sitting there. Um, so it was more about getting excited and, and really ripping into those. So how does the process start for you in deciding to make a change? Obviously, you know, Chiefs and Tainted, two brands that have been around in similar games for a long time, like Counter-Strike and League of Legends and and even Call of Duty with Chiefs for a, for a moment of time there. How does the decision come for you to, A, decide to kind of retire Icon as an esports team and turn yep. into a parent company and then B, how does it, how does Chiefs become the best decision for you? Yeah, I guess um, the idea was kind of floated. I was, a, I was approaching, I had been speaking to an international org around setting up, um, you know, an Australian division. Mm. Um, and I guess that kind of got the idea in my head um, as to how that look, how that actually looks on paper and is it practical? Um, and then, mm. you know, I guess off the back of that, we really, um, took a look at the scene and what that actually looks like. Um, what can we do outside of the box of what everyone else is doing? How can we be different? And obviously I think it comes down to looking at being smarter as well. Mm-hmm. Um, is it is it smarter to be competing against each other or does it make sense to combine resources, um, IP and knowledge and just bring it all together under one banner? I think that's where it ultimately sat. Um, in terms of picking the chiefs, I think it was just, um, right, right place, right time. Ultimately where, where we landed there, um, Mm -hmm. Frank, Frank looking for investment, 
Um, and then obviously us looking to pursue a potential merger as well. And it, the stars just aligned on that front. I really want to um, identify one thing you said there about the possibility of becoming an Australian division for an international organisation. It's been something that so many people have talked about a lot, and I've been thinking about this for ages. There's always so many rumours of, you know, renegades. They have Aussie CS boys. They're, surely they're going to set up something in Australia. Now they've got a bunch of Fortnite players here and a local manager. You know, Fnatic, there's been rumours about that for ages. The founder obviously being Sam from Sydney and his and his mum who's still living in Sydney today. And so many discussions from Southeast Asian teams. You know, is Mineski going to come over here with Zach Holman, who's from Avant and that kind of stuff? How, how does that actually work? Did you get through many of those conversations at all? Do you create um, renegades.oce? You know, if, if that's the example, do you just create a brand new brand and and um, pretend that you're no different from Fnatic overseas? Or how does that actually work? Yeah, it's really interesting. That, so I won't say the name, but it was a European brand. So yep. I guess for them, it's about market capture as well. So um, you know, obviously the Renegades have done well. They get the best, best of both worlds. They got, you know, that Aussie attachment while obviously competing over there in the States as well. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think it could be a smart move, you know, for brands looking into like the Asia region and obviously if you think bigger APAC as a whole, um, because you ultimately, you don't want, you want to capture the global audience as well and the, the data that you can capture and, you know, create more commercial opportunities off the back of that. I think that was kind of like the driving force for a lot of, you know, probably the, the rumors that you've heard in particular and why these brands would be looking to do something like that is that there is that mm. upside to be able to do it, uh, to, to look into other regions. And I, I think that you'll see it over the next couple of years in particular, more so probably the Asia region because uh, population and numbers and esports in general. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I do think that will be a more common theme. Yeah, and I think for anyone um, who's listening here who isn't from Australia – one thing I like to talk about is when I was at Corsair, the spending habits of Australian esports fans and gaming fans is so similar to the US. So even if you want to test a market, and that's what I've heard a bit from Southeast Asia, companies saying, all right, we've built enough capital to come from a lower socioeconomic area to a higher one, but expansion into the US is so expensive. If you want to compete against MLG and you want to compete against you know ESL, the amount of money you have to put down to compete against them or FaZe or 100 Thieves is crazy, as you're seeing with 100 Thieves, you know, raising 30 million at a time. So maybe Australia is a good tester market to A, see, does your brand resonate with a higher socioeconomic audience? And also, it's extremely similar to the US, you know, where around 10% of population size and generally 10% of revenue is quite standard for these peripheral companies. And looking at the average spend per customer, very similar. The types of products, the features, the marketing, it's all super similar. So you're getting really like a, we're getting a west in the east, I guess, over here. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a cheaper trade-off, uh, I think, as well, which is why it was probably appealing. Mm. Um, and like I said, I, I do believe that there will be a few that do jump into the space over the next couple of years for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's something something I'd love to explore a little bit more. I think it's probably another podcast idea to get some people like this on to to get their thoughts about it for sure. So I guess the other question too is that this is something that you and I have talked about a ton because we catch up probably once a month or so for a phone call, um, as you know more people should do. I think in the esports industry around diversifying assets and the issues with relying on only one income stream. So obviously the last podcast, number 47, I talked about esports teams in Australia specifically having to get 90% plus of their revenue from sponsorship sales only. And obviously in a market like Australia, we're a little bit more infants, the non-endemics haven't matured. The endemics don't have as much money because their market is 10% of the size of the US. However, our wages are actually higher in number compared to the US. (laughs) So 
is is that part of the reason? Like, I know that you've been making some, you know, plays or, or talking about some interest into moving to other areas rather than just esports teams. Can you give us a bit of an idea about what you've got planned? Yeah, I guess without going into the, the nuts and bolts of it, but yeah, effectively, um, yeah, it's it's a business decision at the end of the day, uh, I think, and I'll harp on this this all day, um, that the longer that, you know, orgs here in Australia decide that they just want to be a sports team, uh, I think that they're going to fail. Uh, if, yeah. that, if that's your only line of thinking, like you said, in terms of generating your revenue is just sponsorship, then, you know, ultimately you're going to fail. Uh, the, the costs are high. The, the salaries are going to be high. Yeah. Uh, you know, you need more than sponsorship. And like you said, the, I think the non-endemics are coming. Uh, you know, that, that's pretty clear. Uh, they've already started to, you know, drip feed into the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that, that, that CPM itself, that's going to go up eventually as well. So the dollars will come eventually off the back of that. But at the same time, while that's scaling, so is all your costs is already going up as well. So mm. for us in particular, uh, you know, we've been involved for so long in the space. It's about utilizing our IP. Um, like everyone that's been in the space for so long, you know, we've got something that, you know, a lot of the, the commercial and uh, traditional world don't have. But they they need to understand and they don't know how to to get involved. So it's about utilizing that IP um, and our experiences in gaming. And yeah, for us, diversifying our business in in really creating new um, revenue streams or um, you know service lines in particular is you know a big focus for us as a company. That's for sure. Yeah, and and another thing I I wanted you to help explain a bit on the podcast is the power of the board and the people you have behind you. I think that for me being a startup um, and coming from the esports space, this isn't a business thing that I've understood until quite recently about the power of a board and whether you're trying to raise more capital or to reach out to other companies, how important that is. So can you give the listeners a little bit of a rundown about who you have backing you and and why you might have brought them on board? Yeah, I think think our board in particular, I think – I mean, I'm biased, but I think we've got the best board um, here in Australia, and for, especially from an org perspective. I think um, the wealth of experience we we get from from having these guys is unreal. Um, yeah. Especially coming from a bedroom startup, as you know, it's a, it's a steep learning curve. Um, there's yeah. a lot to learn, and we, as you know, you know, young young businessmen, we don't know everything, right? As much as we'd like to, yeah, or think um, we do in esports. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one of the two. Yeah. So there's a lot of learning just from a business um, perspective. Things you don't even think about, um, they've got the answers to already because they've they've lived it. So I guess um, you know our board come from our back the background in particular is you know sports ownership, traditional sports ownership, sports marketing, um, obviously finance and banking as well. Obviously in the investment space um, heavily. So I guess like the benefit as well as um, you know their network is insane. They're mm. talking about. Um, companies that I guess you know we wouldn't get the opportunity to speak to uh, you know it might take you know seven or eight meetings just to get to the right person there's a good chance that um, you know these guys have had the opportunity to speak to the CEO mm. so obviously network is everything um, and obviously you know people shy away from LinkedIn um, I know we both don't but yep. it's it's one of the, the best tools for networking and I guess I'd chalk business down to, to 90% networking yeah. and talking to yeah. people. And obviously when your board has that such wealth of experience and connections that I think that really helps 
um, get into the door to a lot of companies that we wouldn't necessarily get the chance to speak to. Yeah, I want to pull apart, I guess, two things from that. I think one one thing that you and I, and, and I've been trying to talk to so many other people about this for so long is think that an esports team needs to think about themselves less like a sports team like you said and more like an agency yep there's no reason that you as an esports team can't even look at what team immunity did 10 years ago where they're running tournaments for their sponsors they're going to packs on behalf of their sponsors setting up booths and then you're drawing extra revenue from these people yep. and this is something i've talked about in previous podcasts and also in one-on-one mentor sessions too is it's a great way to bring in the once-off revenue to prove yourself to then sign the 12-month contract yeah, because it's so hard if you're trying to sign, even an endemic sponsor like a Razor, if you come to them and slap a $100,000 contract on the table, they don't even know who you are. It's mm-hmm. like slapping marriage rings on the table and saying, <laughs> let's go. Yeah. But, you know, you need to have a bit of a taster first. You need yep. to prove to them you can do some digital marketing. You need to prove to them that you even know how to do proper reporting and accounting and sending them you know, a, an invoice that looks professional and yep. keeping up with them in meetings and doing the networking and things like that. So. Yep. You know, instead of that, going to Razor and saying, hey, guys, we're already going to PAX Australia. How about we integrate you into our on-stage thing we're doing? It's just going to cost you five grand to start off with. Yeah. And likely if they're already going to something like PAX, they've already got a bucket of money they're throwing at it because PAX is expensive. Yeah. And then five grand might make sense to them to do some meetups. And then you can start the discussion and you can continue it from there. Yeah. And I think that's the trap everyone falls into, right? Um, mm. They think that they can slap together a, a sponsorship deck that's, a 12-month deal uh, where these brands are, might be already hesitant to get in the space and you're asking them to tip in you know, a ton of cash for a year mm. when they don't know what they're going to get at the back end of it. So if you can alleviate that by providing, yeah, like you said, even if it is just a once-off, but you can show proof of concept, they're more than likely going to you know, be keen to, to obviously explore that further and maybe look at a 12-month contract. Um, mm. But yeah, obviously... And this comes back to that sports model, right? Everyone's trying to sell a 12-month sponsorship for, you know, the jerseys. Mm. So, And I think that's where diversifying for us helps in particular because we can not necessarily have to do that 12-month contract. Maybe we do something else, you know, that's a, an activation or something like that where it's it's a tester and they get to see what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think the agency model is is something that yeah could work for quite a few teams. And I mean, I've done it as a freelancer. I've yeah. gone and spoken at high school events and such. There's no reason that someone else can't do it. All it requires is basic knowledge of how to set up a trestle table, give away sponsor things and talk to kids about computers, which they all want to listen to anyway. Yeah. You know, some of these events like the Monash Computer Games Boot Camp previously or the um, it's at Chisholm Institute of TAFE now each year, they pull 200 plus kids and it's free to exhibit at. Yeah, yeah, these kind of events, getting yourself in the community, it's not too hard to do. The other thing as well that we talked about is LinkedIn, and I always harp on about LinkedIn a lot, and you definitely post on LinkedIn a lot, but probably no one else in Australian esports does it all, I think. And I try to come back to this in as many podcasts as I can to be as annoying as I can. My investment is from LinkedIn. My first three clients I ever got were from LinkedIn. Um, You know, future strategic investments that we're discussing at the moment, both of those, LinkedIn. So, you know, I can't harp on enough that go and post some stuff on yeah, LinkedIn, absolutely. share some articles, be genuine in what you're saying, add yeah. some comments on top, and then off you go. Yeah, I, and I co-sign that all day. Some of the best, uh, you know, connections and networks and opportunities I've got are off the back of LinkedIn. Mm. Uh, so, obviously, I think, you know, it, it's not what it was a couple of years ago. It's it's definitely a useful tool um, for people. And, I, uh, yeah, I highly encourage mm. people to start using it if they're not. 
And the advantage for esports right now is that LinkedIn is focusing on promoting two things. Number one is new sectors like esports. Number two is self-made, not company-made content. So three weeks ago, I woke up to 199 inbound connection requests. And for me, as someone who's quite active on LinkedIn, I'd probably get 20 per week, 20 to 30 per week in total. So that kind of jump is ridiculous. I think I got a plus four to 500% week on week jump, which you can track internally on your LinkedIn stats. Yeah. Also that, I think the organic reach for for LinkedIn in particular is it's insane. Yeah. Um, Especially through like the the tagging methods and stuff like that as well. It it, it appears and it's, it's not like your, you know, your Instagram or your Twitter and stuff like that. It's, it's proper organic reach and you, you do see the different, you know, um, marketers or founders or CEOs. They're the ones that are checking you out. So you've got mm. the opportunity there to, I guess, showcase what, what you're talking about to some, some big people. So, yeah. Yeah. And I must say, I'm definitely not the best at creating content. Like someone like Nade shot is much better, for example, but I probably get two posts per week trending on hashtag esports on LinkedIn as yeah, well, cool. which is crazy. So you're right. They're just promoting them so much. And all I'm doing is sharing other people's work and adding a couple of comments onto it. And it proves that you just know what's happening within the market. And if yeah. someone wants to enter, they're the person you're going to go and talk to. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to um, chat a little bit about the nature of your merger and, and what happened. We talked a little bit off microphone about that as well. Mergers is something that hasn't really happened much at all in the esports scene as a whole. Obviously, it's common in traditional business with ASX companies, even in apps like iCandy, purchasing other you know, app companies, especially purchasing revenue is quite common. In esports, we've seen it a little bit, but generally it's kind of just been a team has died or wanted to exit and then they've merged with someone else or a slightly hostile takeover with the whole outlaws and, and optic, etc. Do you think this is going to be a bit more of a trend? Is it something that's set only for emerging markets or is it going to be a bit of a global trend? Oh, it's a tough one. Um, I think I think it could be well utilized here in our region. Obviously, like you said, it's emerging market. I think in mm. the states, obviously, it might be a bit tougher, uh, given some of the brands that are involved. And you've kind of seen um, the optic situation. Uh, you know, I, I have my own thoughts on that. I don't know how that's going to pan out for the brand if Hector's not involved. Mm. Uh, I think the optic brand dies when if he's not no longer involved. I think Twitter agrees for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's 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 re- I I I watched optic from day one. You know, like back when he was making his vlogs. So yeah, I think obviously that's that's a, a and a bad example probably of of a, of a merger or a takeover. But that's obviously got its own circumstances. I think mm. uh, when you talk about our merger in particular, I think it was a very net positive situation for everyone involved. So I I would like I'd like to see it happen more. Um, where it makes sense, obviously, uh, in particular, because, you know, we, we were okay to, um, I guess, give up our IP as Icon at, uh, as a brand, as an esports brand, because we saw the bigger picture with what we wanted to accomplish, you know, outside of just esports in particular. So I think it's got legs for it here in Australia and probably other markets as well. It just probably needs to make sense. Yeah. And I think from an outsider's perspective, and we haven't talked about this, the reason why I would think that you think Chiefs makes sense, and this goes for any other team that may want to be you know, exiting or merging in the future, is that Chiefs have a book of history of winning tournaments with League of Legends, Counter-Strike, etc. They've also got a history in social media and content, and they also have a book of sponsors that are paying them money our revenue coming in the room as well. Whereas, you know, it's harder to think about in esports like some people are right now, where they're trying to think like a tech company, let's scale until Google or Facebook buys us. Yeah. 
But yeah. unfortunately, as a startup, you're being paid to try things, like we were talking about before. You're being paid to to win sponsors over a period of time and make yeah. some losses on some activities. But ultimately, you know, a lot of these companies, like I said, even with these ASX guys, they're happy to buy companies that are losing money, but they want revenue. They want to buy revenue. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, that all that was you know factored in to what we wanted to do. Uh, you, you're buying a legacy brand mm. in particular, and obviously, the Chiefs had you know good runs on the board and. Obviously, that history, um, you know, obviously we were competitors for so long, you know, across, you know, it's obviously Counter-Strike more in particular, a little mm. bit for Call of Duty. Um, and yeah, it, obviously that, that played a big part into to why we wanted to be involved. But I guess we saw the, the value in the IP of the Chiefs and obviously the hard work that Frank had done to to get to where he has. Um, and obviously he has so many good results on the board in terms of, res- you know, winning performances as well. So mm. And obviously their social media was, was obviously another factor as well. And as a slightly left of field question, if if I was to, like when I was a sponsor, I would sum up a few teams by thinking of one word to describe them. So Avant is content, for example, with Giles. Um, and then other teams have other names. How would you sum up where the Chiefs sit in the market? What's their major power? I think performance. Um, if I had to use another word, I'd say all-rounder. I think um, mm. I think for Chiefs in particular, they've got the results. They're always in the mix for to, to lift a trophy, which is what I love about esports, and that's that was what yeah. we did with Icon in particular. We, we based around that. Yeah. Um, I think the marketing is top notch. Uh, the brand, the visual, everything else that goes along with it. I think that I'd sum them up as like the overall package. Um, but otherwise, performance for sure. I think they've done they've proven themselves over a long period of time. Yeah, and I think Chiefs is a really cool model that people should look at, and I always push people to look at for creating your own esports team. There's a couple of different ones. You know, Avant's model is try to get as many teams in different games as possible to really diversify and try to get these Tier 2 teams that could push up to Tier 1 without having to spend too much to do so. Whereas a team like Chiefs, the interesting model for me was... Get one game, League of Legends, do it really well for multiple years, sign a few sponsors, and then, okay, what's game number two? You know, Counter-Strike. Let's do that quite well for a little bit. You know, let's be a tier one team for a period of time. What's next? Game number three, Rocket League. You know, et cetera, et cetera, then pick up Fortnite and that kind of stuff. Do you see something like that continuing for the Chiefs? Yeah, for sure. I think, um, like, there's a ton of games that I'd love to get into, but obviously the... You know, we've got to drive more revenue through the door to to pick up those teams and do a good job of it because... Mm. Um, you know, if we're not going to be able to provide the players with the platform and everything that they need to succeed, then I think it's it's not in our best interest to pick them up. Yeah, like, um, I'd, I'm dead keen to, and I have been for a long time to jump into Rainbow Six. I'm a massive fan of Ubisoft in particular, and and what they're doing here locally. Yeah, and couldn't speak more highly about um, what they're doing. So I think, yeah, obviously as we scale, you know, we'll definitely jump into other titles. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, it's something that we talked a little bit about off microphone as well and something I talked to an investor party about who's well-versed in Australian and global esports and has multiple positions in different companies and teams. And their their thing saying was, let's use a thought exercise that you've got a million followers and you've got a sponsor, say Red Bull paying you a million dollars a year, and you're in one game, let's say it's League of Legends, is that sponsor going to offset your four to $700,000 cost to pick up a Counter-Strike team? Are you going to add on enough fans and enough value for you to then go back to your sponsor, Red Bull, and say, okay, we've added this on. Please give me an extra three, four, five hundred dollars $500 to really offset that oncoming cost. You know, Can you pre-sell that cost that's coming on? Because it doesn't seem like something that happens too much right now. Yeah, it's, it's actually interesting talking about that. Um, so Adrian Whittingham, who's obviously one of our uh, main shareholders, 
he he threw us a task to create like a PL per title mm. and kind of break down the sponsorships across that. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's yeah. and that's hard to do from I guess like outside the fence when you think about how we've kind of operated the last, you know, five years with teams in particular, is like how how do you value each sponsorship across each of those titles and what what would we perceive it to be worth without you know directly asking the sponsor what yeah. do you value each team at you know what i mean yeah um so that task was put to us so that's something that we've, we've we've been thinking about internally as well as thinking outside the box in terms of what value is associated mm. with you know the each sponsorship or potential sponsorships you know that we could be chasing yeah, and that makes perfect sense because, I mean, for us as a sort of consultancy agency, we often have that discussion, which is what benefit does each employee bring to the company, whether they're bringing in direct revenue or not, because not everyone does sales. You know, if they're just doing graphics, obviously they're not bringing in revenue, but yeah. is the monetary value they're offering offsetting their $25.50 at minimum wage or <laughs> upwards from there per hour that you're spending on them, you know, the, the yeah. three to four, five grand a month, including tax and super? plus management that you have to put towards those guys. And I really like that thought exercise about, yeah, how do you value your team? Because obviously some some sponsors you can guess, you know, like yeah. Dino at Gigabyte, he loves Counter-Strike. And you can tell that, you know, if you're sponsored by Gigabyte or Intel now, he's going to want you to have some sort of thing in Counter-Strike. Same with Logitech. You know, Corsair's made a recent global play in the past couple of years into a ton of Dota. They started sponsoring Team Secret and that kind of stuff. And then yeah. a play into League. So you can understand that they like that a little bit. Or, you know, certain brands like HP Omen, they love Overwatch. They just, anything Overwatch, they seem to slap their money into, yeah. including the global contenders, et cetera. So, yeah, I think it's a interesting way to think about it. We'll give a shout out to Widow on that one. Yeah, done well. Done that's well, a good thought exercise. I think some university um, people will be listening to this. Go, yeah, that's the, that's a great idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. I love it. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that more often with some people. I'm talk to some different teams about doing that. So I guess changing the state of play a little bit and keeping the um, discussion on on widow and and boards and investing. Can I get a bit of your opinion on the state of investment in the market, uh, particularly first maybe Australia, and then if you want to weigh in a little bit on global? Do you think that money is still quite easy to come by for investment? Do you think it's slowing up? How do you see things? Um, I mean, if you look overseas, it doesn't look like it's slowing up. <laughs> I, I feel as like you're reading about something every week at the moment in terms of mm. um, whether it be cap raises or. You know, new rounds or new mm. people entering the scene. Thirty um, million dollars Series B. Yeah, yeah, not bad. Um, I think, and obviously, as you know, franchise leagues pop up. You know, obviously, they've still got to sell a lot of slots there. So, I'd imagine there'll be some announcements from, you know, how that looks over the next couple of months. Um, from whether it be new people jumping in the space or uh, further cap raises from certain teams. Mm. Uh, in in terms of like, I guess Australia, I think. I think it's kind of plateaued a little bit in terms of because everyone's kind of established themselves in terms of where everything is at the moment. Um, mm. I think there will be further cap raises in the future. Uh, that could be a next year thing or it could be a year after. But I think obviously, you know, as as you look to trend analysis overseas and kind of where the, the state of play is over there at the moment, you know, what's going to be possible here? Is it is it the performance centres? Is it... The idea of, you know, little retail outlets. Is it, you know, studio set up for content? You know, that mm. that's all stuff that requires cap. So I think um, that'll be something to look forward to in the future. But I, I think from from an industry standpoint here, I think it's kind of in a nice place where we don't really need um, a crazy amount of money to come through the door and shake things up again. Mm. Yeah, and I think adding to some of the stuff you were saying there and going back to our discussion from before, 
a lot of the investors that are angels and seed that are interested in the potential upside and interested in the founder particularly and just the founding group only, a lot of them are already in the space in Australia. There's still a lot of people we're talking to overseas, especially a lot of investment bankers have come to us. In the past three months, I've probably had seven or eight new ones, I think, from around the world. So there's a lot of interest in that area. But what I'm seeing is, like we are talking about before, is revenue. A lot of these traditional investors, they're looking for any revenue that they can multiple because, you know, no matter how bad you are at maths, uh, a 10 times multiple and $0 is still $0. So they're looking for anything. If you can draw any kind of revenue, that helps you, A, get a valuation, but B, help prove that you're doing something that can then be multiplied. Yep. It's how can I turn that $50,000 revenue then into $300,000 revenue, yep. you know, which is extremely common in traditional business. And that's why, you know, they employ traditional business development managers and these kind of people in these VC funds or hedge funds, et cetera, that might be able to help you grow your business. Yeah. Big time. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And I think for me too, there's a lot of look, um, and I talked about this a little bit in my last podcast and a little bit of my socials, away from esports and more into gaming, quote unquote gaming. I find a lot that brands come to us and they say, I want to do esports. And it turns out really they, A, want to do millennials and Gen Z, yeah. and B, they just think that gaming is a great medium for them to get into there. Yeah. So I know that you've done a bit of work with like the iFly, the internal, um, you know, skydiving and doing some Fortnite tournaments and things like that too. Yeah. You know, how do you see that kind of market and how do you offset that yourself from obviously you have a bias to sell a professional esports team how do you offset that internally by focusing also on casual gaming yeah i think they go hand in hand um well i think they do anyway i think you know without gaming there's no esports so yeah and obviously the gaming market in general is a bigger beast in terms of you know when you talk about the money coming through the door yeah um and i think it's good it's a good way to bridge our certain markets in particular um Obviously, esports in particular, it's a hard. I guess it's a lot more hardcore than the casual gamer. So, if you can create like a soft entry point um, for a few of these IPs that need that demo in particular, then I think it's a good thing. Um, mm. There's a, there's the opportunity opportunity to transition that across to esports, but I think you know utilizing gaming as a whole is still a powerful move as well. And another thing I wanted to talk a little bit about that I think came on as a trend and is a bit softer now is influencers representing esports teams. That was obviously a big thing for a long time, especially in the tier two organizations. But, you know, in the past, Tainted Minds and Icon didn't make a huge play into that area. And similar with Chiefs, I don't see too many influencers around that space. What's your thoughts on these teams that are attaching themselves to influencers? Yeah, I think it's you have to add value. Um, to to the influencer in particular and the streamer in particular, I think mm. if you're not going to add value, then um, you should shouldn't be looking at it because um, you know it's important for for both brands that everyone's getting the best out of a situation. So yeah, look, it's something that we're uh, in particular the last couple of months we spent a lot of time on actually mm. is that we do want to work a lot lot more in that space um, because ultimately, you know. I guess esports brands are marketing wheels, so mm. we want to be able to to give the opportunity to help you know streamers and influencers as well in that in terms of their own marketing because obviously they do a great job at monetizing and being their own business in a way. But there's there's certain soft skills that they obviously don't have that we can obviously attribute to to what they're doing as well. Yeah, I think you're bang on. You know, I've had a lot of discussion with influencers on their side about asking me, should I join an esports team? What's the benefits? And also discussions on the other side, like we're having right now, that the team needs to provide something of tangible value. There was a long period of time with tier two and tier three teams that were using influencers to stats pad their sponsor decks decks to then send out the sponsor to say, hey, I've got 
50,000 fans and you find out that 48,000 are through one Twitter account, which is one yeah. of their influencers. And the payoff for the influencer is A, they get to be attached to a brand, they get free graphics, which they get anyway from their mods. Yeah. Uh, B, they get a free headset and a keyboard. And that locks them out from getting money from someone else. You know, if you've got 48,000 Twitter followers, you should be getting paid by Razer or Corsair or someone to be giving you peripherals. And yeah, for time. anyone listening now, if you've got 48,000 followers, you're not getting paid, talk to me or Click or anyone who can help you get that sponsor because you should be. Yeah, big time. Mm. Or Nick at um, iconcreative.com.au. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> there we go. That's great. Yeah, it's a shame we agree on so many things. Yeah. Otherwise, we can't argue too much on the podcast. Um, so I guess the next one to come up really is the, the state of sponsorship and sales in the market. So looking globally, talking to Anne from Fnatic, you know, massive T1 team globally, down to talking to local teams here, the general consensus is that non-endemic sponsors, so those who aren't uh, natural to esports or have entered, have been a lot slower to enter the market than originally anticipated and slower than people would like because people like cash flow. <laughs> you know, how are you yeah. finding discussions with non-endemics and how are you finding the conversion rates? Yeah, I think we've had, I guess, some really fruitful conversations in particular the last six months. I think it's important for people that are talking to non-endemics to understand the journey. Uh, and I kind of mm. touched on it before is that, you know, if you're asking for a sponsorship in particular and they've never been in esports, it's going to be quite a scary prospect for them in particular. They don't yeah. know what they're getting into. Uh, so I guess, you know, the lead time and the pipeline is you, you should be looking at a year plus for some of these because that's realistic. You have to take them through the journey, the education mm. uh, and everything else associated with that. So I think, look, I think you'll see a lot over the next year. I think if you look over the, the trend of the last couple of years, I think sponsorships heading the right direction in certain aspects uh, from a value point of view in particular, I think uh, the, <laughs> The yearly sponsorship dollars are going up, not not going down, which is a positive. Mm. So I think if you take stock from that alone, I think it's it's in a, in a pretty good spot. And and again, I do think over the next couple of years, in particular, those non-endemics are going to be involved, whether it be uh, providing you know for the tournaments or or the teams or both. I think mm. they they both work hand in hand. In, in particular, you need someone to be brave enough to jump in and to spend the money it's, it's just up to us as individuals and brands to make sure that they get the best experience possible so that they come back and that their competitors see it working and want to get involved you know and that's that's how everyone should look at it they just want to mm. want to create a, a safe space for these these companies to be involved yeah and i had some along those lines i had some great advice come to me from ben parsons from ministry of sport who's an old executive with southern cross stereo and you know, works around the traditional sports space and a mentor of mine. And when we were talking about Shade Crew, especially, you know, being focused primarily on non-endemic sponsors, being that in the esports market right now, a lot of people, I, I believe, should be looking at these quick wins, these 5, 10, 15 Ks with the agencies that you can knock it out. You can get 5K for an appearance at PAX, for an online series, for something short, maybe sponsor only your Rocket League team, only for the Rocket League Championship Series, your Dota team for TI, etc. And you use that relationship to build to the eventual 12 months. Because like you were alluding to as well, the sales cycle is what people don't necessarily think about. Yeah. When I was at Corsair, my yearly budget was locked in November the year before, minus plus or minus about five to ten K. That's all I had to play with for the whole year. And yeah. it's not enough to do really anything with. Yeah. You know, five to ten K is not enough to do anything with a tier one influencer, let alone a tier two once you pay for their flights, accommodation and then some equipment to give away. Yeah, big time. And you need to realise these companies need to make the the penny act like the dollar, right? So mm. uh, especially when you do talk about but budget locks in particular. And that should be factored into your lead time and your pipeline in particular. 
yeah. that, you know, you can't have that conversation about, you know, a sponsorship until it could be March, but you might be having the, the conversation a year earlier. You need to understand that there is a proper lead time mm. uh, and non-endemics. It, it is, it is a long, it's a long sting. So mm-hmm. uh, as long as you're patient and you, you, you make the right moves and you create the right environment, um, they, they're going to jump in. Yeah. And I definitely understand the frustration. <laughs> I remember, oh, yeah. remember being a solo consultant working from home, just spamming emails, being like, come on, why would you reply? But then yeah. you realize that, you know, once you start picking up your own staff or you like you and you have a kid and then, you know, other yep. things get in the way and lead times are there for a reason. So you don't make a rash decision. You know, just because Mac is, has billions of dollars in profit does not mean they're going to throw 200 grand at you yeah. just because you sound cool. and you're Yeah, absolutely. Sports. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you need to think what that what value are they getting from it as well. So, mm. is it worth them spending two hundred grand to be on your, the front of your jersey, or can they put that towards a different program that they're going to run? So, mm. uh, it's about thinking about what the value add is for for the client as well. Yeah, and a few for those listening, a few podcasts ago, we talked to Brett Sullivan from Flactest, and he had a great mini rant about that too. Um, you know, really looking in, into your own company and saying, am I, A, providing proper value and B, will my users and other people in the industry care if I don't exist anymore? And then having a real hard look at yourself and saying, okay, am I charging this much money just because it's a metric or a multiple on what Fnatic's charging? Or am I charging this much money because I have enough Twitter followers, I have a good enough brand, I'm winning enough tournaments and I can create enough content to justify those dollars? Yeah, absolutely. It's just what's, what's your worth at the end of the day um, mm. and I think stepping out of your own shoes and asking yourself if you were the client, you step into their shoes, is what you're putting forward of value to them and is would you pay that money yourself, you know what I mean? Mm. So I think that should be an important exercise for everyone as well. Yeah, and I think a community that does that really well now is probably the influencer community and a lot of that's led by Lewis and Ellison at Twitch. You know, I've been told they have a partner Discord where they've got a guide now that says if you're this size, you should charge about this much and it gives people that understanding and a base to start, you know, kind of working off to charge these companies. That's awesome and that's that. hopefully everyone's taking advice on that as well. Yeah, yeah, and we've we've definitely seen that internally, you know, working with EA on some campaigns in NVIDIA and such. I've definitely seen that come across the influencers, which is good. But changing topic slightly, but still staying in the same realm with the market, let's have a bit of a chat about Gfinity. So um, for those listening who don't know, Gfinity is a publicly listed company in the UK. They run their own tournaments, the Elite Series. They also do um, white-labeled or co-branded tournaments with other outside parties, say with FIFA and racing games, etc. In 2017, they advanced into Australia with HG&E, here, there and everywhere, um, as well as with a uh, another capital company and then also under their own name, Gfinity Australia. So they launched in here with the Elite Series as their main goal. Um, they signed on the Chiefs, which is a team that you now own as one of the franchise operators. Ground Zero, another traditional team here in Australia. Order, another newer traditional team and such. But recently, uh, yesterday or the day before, they announced their closure. Uh, HTE announced they're no longer continuing after making a $5.2 million operating loss on their total investments. So not necessarily yeah. only Gfinity, yeah. but still it, it tells a bit of the story there. Can I get a bit of your thoughts, I guess, on you know the internal part of, of this about what you're initially thinking? Yeah, I think I think I'll echo everyone's sentiments that, you know, it's a, it's a shame for the industry. Uh, in a, on a few fronts, obviously, for some of the staff there in particular, it, I think it sucks that, you know, they're out of a job because uh, there's some good people there. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think overall, you know, the, the business model um, it needed to be addressed a lot sooner in particular because it, it, it needs to be – you need to work with the people on the ground here. 
Um, and for, especially from a community perspective and then obviously from a team perspective mm. as well, because uh, without, without the talent and the product uh, and then listening to the community, you know, things like this can happen. And I think that was ultimately a bit of the downfall. Um, I think there was potential there for it to be awesome. Uh, you know, that is a bang up studio. It looks slick. The mm. production was nice, but you know, at the end of the day, you, you need to get everything else right for it to be successful. Yeah, and I think for me, I saw a lot of similarities between the Championship Gaming Series in 2008 with CS. Obviously, that was killed off a lot by the global financial crisis too. Yeah. But there were so many similarities between, you know, a, a fantastic venue, some big names becoming involved in it, both from esports and traditional sports. You know, they had commentators like Fatality in there. They were using Counter-Strike Source. You know, they were using kind of models, which was the thing to do at that stage, doing it well. It <laughs> yep. looked like a full-on TV production yep. and similar to Gfinity, which was literally a TV production for a period of yeah, time. Yeah, it was. Yep. But I think... Ultimately, for me, like I put out some thoughts on social media for anyone that follows me at Smithy May, I can see them there. I even started using TikTok recently, thanks to Gary V. So I'm getting in with all the 13 year olds. Yeah. But um, yeah, really just too big, too early, I think is a lot of it. I think that some of the things I loved about it was A, you know, the innovation and partnering with Hoyts to have a live facility. That was cool because, you know, ESL is the only other alternative here. Another thing I really liked was their internal company structure in the fact that they had a traditional CEO that could run a business because ultimately, you know, and if you're out of this first startup phase, which you and I aren't right now, you need a CEO who's on the ground doing everything. But when you're creating a larger company, a CEO just has to run a business. You know, the CEO yeah. of Google doesn't have to know the ins and outs every day, the same way a president or prime minister doesn't have to know about, you know, what the average GED score is the same time what's happening with the disaster in Haiti. Yeah. So that's great. And then everybody under them was all of the heads were esports people. They'd come up from the grassroots you know, Ben, who was from PAX to doing their sales, people like Stacia, Stasia, who've been around forever on the grassroots side of things, you know, Jim, who was doing commentary for them. So yep. they had some people who could guide them from underneath as well. And I love to use that exact um, exact model when talking to a lot of these companies. You know, if you want to come in in a big way, this is a fantastic way to do it. And, you know, Mogul, there's been a lot of positives, a lot of negatives in the market about them too. They do have a similar company structure as well. I think it's a great company structure. But, yeah, I agree with you on pretty much all of the points there. Yeah, and I think um, the only thing I was real salty about was the parting comment around the sustainability of, like, the ecosystem. Mm. I think that was a cop-out. I'll be the... Yeah. I'm happy to call that one out. I think that's a bit of a cop out. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, I think it sucks that um, they're no longer in the region. Uh, it, again, it could have been something pretty cool. But at the end of the day, you know, life goes on and, you know, esports in Australia still still lives on with, with or without them. Yeah, and I'm sure you've done something similar to this. You know, in our last board meeting here, because um, Big's been in its current inception for about nine or ten months now, we had a look at our last financial year and took a look at where the revenues were coming from. And I think it's important for people, especially on Twitter, who love to comment, to recognise who is making money in esports right now because people are making money in esports. The publishers are making a lot of money. The influencers are making a lot of money. The influencer agencies are making a lot of money. And the PR companies are making a lot of money. And also the betters are making a lot of money, looking at people like Unicorn and such too. Yeah. So I think it's easy to focus on, uh, you know, I think ESL is losing money on IEM is a common thing people say. You know, Gfinity shutting down after the 5.2 million loss. You look at orders, books, they've spent a million you know, 1.25 million one year up till September last year to grow. You know, there are some people that are losing, which is obviously generally the teams and these kind of organisation structures, but there are a lot of people that are making money as well. 
And for us as a business, it's okay. A lot of our revenue was also coming from influencers. We never wanted to be an influencer agency. Like we're good at it, but it wasn't our main focus. But now that's what we're doing a lot of because you have to follow. If if someone if I'm a startup and Nvidia comes to me and, and slaps 10, 15, 20 grand on the table, I have to be an idiot not to take it if it's within my <laughs> means to do and it's yeah. within the industry operating. Yeah, no, for sure. I think, I think as a startup as well, and obviously this kind of ties back to my other point around creating these other business verticals is that Sometimes you just need to pivot mm. and that's just, that's just what it is. Um, you know, you might've had one idea in your head of how you saw the company going, but at the end of the day, if there's money coming through a different silo, then guess what? That's the one that works. So yeah, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I think, um, and like, yeah, as I said, there's money in this industry. Uh, it's just for people just need to be smarter about how obviously they spend it, mm. um, or how they value it as well. I remember the first time that I said like a big was going to pivot. I was so happy with myself. I was that's thinking it, I'm great. a real startup founder. Now I hate it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anytime someone talks about pivot, you have to think like, okay, did they fail or did they just try? Like, yeah, it's always it's always hard. Like, that's it's such a life, isn't it? Yeah, and it's such a cop out word you hear so much. Like, you know, grind and hustle and that yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah. I feel like pivot's the next one. And for, for like for anyone listening, I went to a conference last week and the founder of Tribe spoke there. So it was it was Monday this week and the founder of Tribe Jules Lund spoke there exactly about like what you were saying. So mm-hmm. they developed that to try to connect influencers with brands and they realized that so many brands were coming to them saying, can we just buy the content? I don't want Mary from whoever with 5,000 <laughs> po- followers to even post this yeah. because it's costing them $100,000 a year or even $100,000 a quarter to generate hundreds of images of content created by creative agencies. Yeah. And these people with iPhones out in the bush with a drone are doing a much better job than that. Yeah. And it's really identifying that where's the money coming from and maybe mm. you should follow that market, even if it's not your original plan, especially I'm a big believer that even if it's in the same industry, like influencers, esports, similar industry, you should definitely chase it. Yeah, and I guess I was like kind of tied back to my point about gaming in particular before when you asked about it. I think mm. you know if there if there's a revenue opportunities in gaming as opposed to strictly esports, and you know as a business we should definitely be exploring those in particular mm. and tying it back to you know our pedigree in esports as well. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, and definitely agreeing with like what Matt Jessup always says is follow the publishers because they're making all the money right now. <laughs> they own the IP, they own the games. Yeah. You know, if you're trying to leave them in the dark, if you're not getting their approval, you're not knocking on Blizzard's door to network and catch up with them all the time, like you really are missing out. You need to get into these things. And people that have done that really well, if you'd like a case study, is like Kanga getting into the Paladins Pro League. You know, Hayden, Hades and Kanga are sitting there as an Aussie team shipped over to Atlanta. They're sitting next to Virtus Pro, who was purchased for $100 million. They're sitting next to Envy, who've raised multi-million dollars at a time. They're sitting next to teams like NIP, who won everything in Counter-Strike for three years. And there's this little old Aussie team who have not accepted any outside capital until today. Uh, and they're able to get there just by keeping in touch with these developers, keeping a good relationship and working their asses off to get there over that time. Yeah, big time. And at like I said, I think that ties back to networking in particular, how, how powerful it is. Mm. Uh, so for anyone that's listening out there, start networking. Yeah. Uh, uh, obviously, we can talk about it all day, but you still got to go out there and do it. Um, and yeah, obviously, hats off to Hayden, to what he's done over there as well. That's, you know, he's, he's killing it. So. Mm. Yeah, definitely another another good export for Australian yep. esports, I think. Yeah, yep. sitting underneath Renegades for sure. So one thing we talked a little bit about off microphone as well, I'd love to get your thoughts on is what uh, some people call, especially on Twitter, quote unquote, money orgs. 
So there's some teams, and it's a you know it's a bit of a derogatory name, I guess, but there's some teams that come into the market like Chiefs, and they formed because you know they left the team, they didn't enjoy team immunity, they formed really from the grassroots. Or Kanga did the same thing; they formed over a long period of time, training up. You know, the coach generally became the manager, who then became the CEO. They scaled up over that period of time. Yep. You have other orgs like Hundred Thieves globally, Order in Australia, etc., who are a little bit more manufactured, and similar with Shade Crew, who are more manufactured. They've brought together some people to then create something with capital behind it. Do you think that there's still room in the market, whether it's Australia or globally, for more of these large organisations to buy their way into being the top dog? Or do you think that maybe the mergers and acquisitions is going to be more of the way of the future? Yeah, I think obviously 100 Thieves in particular are the the anomaly in terms of, you know, obviously they have the star power behind Nade Shot, mm. who was established as a celebrity in Call of Duty and already had that kind of following and they kind of had that springboard in particular. But if you don't have that, um, you know, and you're just literally trying to buy a brand by throwing cash at the wall, then it's not going to work, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, Because ultimately you can't buy a fan base. You need to to create a community first and then you obviously need to get the teams involved, the results on the board, and you need to build that history, that that history book, like you talked about the Chiefs, Mm. where they've got this this pedigree of accolades and a staunch history behind what the club is and what it's done over the last five years. Mm. Um, you know, you can't just buy that by throwing, you know, 200 grand and going, I'm going to start up a, an esports org and I'm going to get the best team and then we're going to get all these sponsorships. It's just not a thing that happens. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. And I know people, you know, some people may try to take it out of context and not understand because obviously startups are quite often throwing money at a problem. But sports yeah. teams and brands are very different. You know, creating a startup to create a cool app to do something like TikTok. I'm sure TikTok wasn't made by a bunch of people in a basement with no money. <laughs> I'm sure they threw a bunch of money at server architecture. They probably acquired a couple of companies to get to where they are today. Yeah. However, you know, an esports team or an influencer organization or something like that is completely different. You know, you can't always buy your way into the market. Or if you can, you need the star behind you. You need yeah. like Muzilk for Click, for example. He's the catalyst and he's the the yeast and the growth culture that anyone who joins Click now will explode because he started it yeah, and he managed to grow it, it and he got yeah. the clout behind it. And similar with Nade Shot. He already had, what was it, 4 million followers or something by the time 100 Thieves were made. Yeah. And now they're buying their way into League of Legends. They've never done that before, but they've managed to get that culture to start from. Yeah. And I think, yeah, like I said, 100 Thieves are the anomaly. Um, mm. I think... Yeah, it's unbelievable what they've done. I, I feel like they haven't put a foot wrong since they've started, honestly. Yeah. Apart from, obviously, the really super early days when they had, obviously, I think it was the Counter-Strike team. Mm. That didn't go so well. But apart from that, geez, they've killed everything they've touched. Their content's the best in the game mm. by far. Obviously, apparel on top That's, of that alongside FaZe. Like, yeah, and it's crazy to me that in my brain and with everyone else, they say 100 Thieves and FaZe together because FaZe has that pedigree history. Yeah, got long the, history too. They've got the decade of trick shots and 13-year-olds screaming in Xbox Live on microphone and yeah. you know, getting hundreds of thousands of followers, signing creators all over the world. They've even got one in Australia with multiple hundreds of thousands of subscribers and Twitter yeah. followers and such. They've got people like Banks who's now a celebrity in his own and he's dating influencer celebrities. 
They've got, you know, these Call of Duty players who have ticks on Instagram and they're dating models and they're wearing Rolexes, driving Ferraris and Lambos and things like that. They are full star power people. And, you know, Nade Shot and, you know, his partners have managed to pick up Drake. You know, if you were to think who's going to pick up Drake, it'd be FaZe. Yeah. You know, who's to say that FaZe didn't turn them down for sure? But still, the amount of things that 100 Thieves have done in recent past to catch up to FaZe when they've had such such a short amount of time as well. It's actually Such a leadway. It's crazy. Yeah, it's really crazy to me. I think that anyone who can needs to listen more to 100 Thieves and research about them because I think you know it's good to be in awe of them, but also it's fantastic to learn from them. And yeah, see what and I'm like. I'm a huge like podcast nut as well. So he's obviously got his own like self made podcast mm. um, that's worth checking out. And I think they did one with the the CEO in particular in the last couple of weeks, and mm. that was quite insightful because he had like a a startup background as well. Mm. So just looking at the minds behind 100 Thieves, you can just tell that. They've just, in terms of like hiring the right people and the right roles, even that they've just nailed to a T. So mm. I, I think they'll be, I think they'll be on course to be top three orgs in the world, mm-hmm. if not, you know, one of the t- obviously top two. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Over I- time, obviously, you got Cloud Nine and Liquid and. Mm probably fanatic maybe behind that but yeah and obviously liquid do well what we're talking about before which is diversification income streams you know i talked to to ryan l um, at a podcast i am sydney a lot about this for anyone that wants to listen can go back and listen to that you know they really are the kings of diversification of income having a management company that manages their players and influencers having a creative talent you know creative agency having a pr agency also attached to the team with the online liquidpedia and forum etc you know they they are the absolute epitome of you know, diversification. They're the business model to look at, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, once 100 Thieves have a long period of time to scale up, you know, once they pick up more than just influencers and esports, I think they can get there too. They've already got the merchandise locked down. Uh, so, yeah, they've just got a little bit more to go. And I'm excited to see, like, what that facility is going to look like as well. Mm. Obviously, if you've seen the video and the walkthrough, it looks like it's going to be insane. And I really want to see how the retail store goes as well. Mm. So I think that could be game-changing. Yeah, and I think a big a big thing that really switched uh, a lot of inbounds for me on LinkedIn, funnily enough, is the phase meetups in the US as well, in California and New York. There was that phase meetup in New York that got 6,000 kids came out. Yeah, I think Banks was cops, jumping on the it. The cops ended up coming yeah, out to the break cops it shut up. it down. Banks jumped out of this thing and the crowd went wild. They were screaming, you know, we want banks. And, you know, they had all their other influencers there with their phones out. And then two days later, I think it was in California, they did another meetup. They had like 5,000 kids rocked up. The kids had to shut, the cops had to shut it down. And that was for one of their YouTubers. Just one of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just one of them rocked up. The star power is ridiculous. Yeah, no, and they've earned it, you know, obviously across. A decade, as you said, of just absolutely killing the game. So, mm. yeah, there's, there's, I think there's a lot of good um, concepts to take from established orgs. And I think, you know, that's what everyone should be doing here or aspiring to do here is looking at what works in those brands and why they're so successful and what parts of their business could you, you know, take to this market, obviously at a scaled version. Yeah. and actually make work. That should ultimately be what everyone's trying to do here. Yeah, I agree. And I think the other major learning is that there's only so many things you can show online, but when you can get people to turn up in person, this is why I love the fighting games community, when you can get bums on seats, you can really prove. You know, it was a, I felt fantastic when we packed out Burger Love here in Melbourne with 88 fighting games people because it showed everyone, the videos that we showed online, but also, 
the you know non-endemic sponsors that were there and sponsoring and turned up they're like wow these people are real they're cheering they're yeah, going crazy concept as well right yeah 100 yeah. percent. you know the amount of literally the amount of inbounds i had when i shared jeffrey pab's video from phase clan was ridiculous because people were like holy crap this is real Six thousand kids turn up in new york city to see four creators in the esports space it's absolutely mental how much marketing goes into selling six thousand tickets for a comedy festival or for music you know even for a large band or a medium to large band like Brockhampton or something like that. Six thousand is a good venue. That's a lot of revenue. Yeah, these guys do it with a, a few videos on Twitter. Yeah, That's few Instagram. That's all it takes. Yeah, a couple of nights drinking Alize and, and, and they Yeah, and they're all out there, good to go. All right, fantastic. Well, I think uh, there's one topic I really wanted to to finish on with you, and this is not something we've ever talked about before. I'd love to get your thoughts on it because I've been thinking about this for a long time. Is thoughts on traditional sports and esports crossovers. So number one, I wanted I wanted to split up two different parts. Number one, I wanted to talk about teams, companies, and brands. Do you think that there is an obvious natural fit of traditional sports um, codes and teams into esports? If so, can you give any examples as to what you think it is, or do you think that no one's found the perfect model just yet? No, I think there definitely is. Um, I mean, if you look at a lot of these traditional sports, if you take Australia, for example, there's a t- obviously oversaturation of um, sporting codes here. Mm. But you look at a lot of those those players right in that team, how many of them play video games? I guarantee you there's a lot. So obviously there is there is that connection there already. Mm. Um, I think the challenge is not making it awkward uh, with how you either um, activate within that space because... Um, that's the last thing you want to do is you don't want to make this a really awkward thing. But I think there's definitely, um, there are certain synergies there. I know for a lot of the sporting clubs, you know, their end goal is to to grab that that market that isn't attending their games or or, the, or a part of their community as such because, you know, they've got, potentially they've got that, that older demo that's the 45-year-old man, uh, whereas they want to get, you know, a bunch of the, the six, 16 to 24s coming through to their games and actually putting the bums on seat. So mm. I think there's definitely scope for it. I think you have to look at it from a different lens where you probably lean a little bit more into utilizing the players that within those teams that are gamers and making it, you know, more organic as opposed to a really forced concept. Yeah, I had a really interesting discussion with someone who's close to a team owner in a major code here in Australia. And the team owners saw esports as the opposite. They saw that most esports organizations are coming to them and saying, hey, can you buy my team? Can we work together? (laughs) Where this guy said, look, I've got hundreds of thousands of followers. I'm spending millions of dollars a year on salary. You should pay me to use my brand to be attached. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's probably a fair call. And again, like I said, you need to look at it from a different lens. Mm. And what's the value add as well? Because if you're like, that's the wrong approach. Mm. Because ultimately at the end of the day, they've got, a larger following base, a larger digital footprint. Uh, your, you know, your fifteen thousand followers is pretty small in comparison to yeah. some of these brands. So yep. the value add shouldn't be, hey, buy my team. The value add should be, how can we help you guys hit a younger demo? Yeah. Um, you know, and the trade off is there. You get the cross promotion through a brand that's, you know, 10 times the size of yours. Mm, yeah, and not only that, it can bring you new fans, it can bring you, you know, more investor interest, more sponsor interest. You know, ASS companies do this all the time and, you know, while some some look kind of like scams, some look legitimate, if you can build any sort of partnership with a traditional company and you can announce that out, build a case study and say, hey, you know, we're now working with the Collingwood Magpies, the Brisbane Broncos, someone like that, that adds so much more clout because 
that means a traditional company has trusted you with pairing your both of your brands together. And someone like the Collingwood Magpies are doing multiple million dollars a year in revenue, you know, and have hundreds of thousands of fans online versus a much smaller esports team, like yep. you said, with, you know, an esports team in Australia, 15,000 followers, you could probably comfortably say they're doing 50 to 100K max in revenue per year. That's a big difference in company size that are partnered together. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, you should be, I mean, yeah, the ultimate goal should be there to, to help grow your fan base, um, not ask for money. At the end of the day, your, your value add to them is not not comparable for asking for that kind of cash in particular. Yep. So I think um, yeah, a lot of people could take stock in something like that, that there is value add in that cross-promotion and marketing mm. and exposure. And like you said, it's adding, basically it's adding to your resume yep. for credibility as well. Yeah, and touching on what you said too about it not being awkward, that's always the hard one, right? Yeah. We've seen so many activations yeah. where, you know, rugby players, cricket players, AFL players, whoever, are just playing with someone, you know, playing the switch together in a room and they, you can just tell they're not friends. They don't yeah. get along. They just like the same kind of thing. But yeah. just because I like jet skis and used to own one does not mean I want to go hang out with a random guy who owns a jet ski. Yeah, that's a great comparison. Yeah, it's very true. And uh, before that, someone says it sounds like a brag. It's not. My jet ski costs eight hundred bucks. You're flexing on the yeah, jet ski. Exactly. They're super cheap. Honestly, jet skis are so cheap. But um, yeah. No, I think you're 100 percent right with what you were saying. And it was a really, I guess, it was an eye-opening discussion for me because you see that a lot in esports. They have the handout a lot of the time. They say, "Hey, I've got contact to who you want to get access to," and you go, "Well, really, what's your brand power? Who do you really have access to? If you've got 15,000 followers, what's your IP?" Sure, that as a startup, like with big esports, a lot of the IP is in my knowledge and my staff's knowledge of how to activate on the industry. But that's because we're a consultancy type agency. Yep. But if you're a team, uh, you, is your IP really 15,000 followers? Is that really worth very much at all yeah maybe not so much yeah probably not yeah and i think another way uh, to phrase like what you were saying too is what we're doing with a lot of traditional sports is how to do sideshows to what they're doing i don't think that an esports team needs to be purchased by a code or an organization i don't think they need to own a team they need to think a bit broader they need to think about how do we get people in before the bounce how do we do halftime entertainment that's relevant to the kids even if it's a Fortnite dancing competition i know the internet hates it but the kids love it you know, yeah. how do they do side pro-ams, for example? You know, the pro-am that was created with um, Fortnite at the Australian Open, that has drawn an absolute ridiculous amount of inbounds for us and interest from other sporting codes saying, hey, we're not about to give up doing golf or tennis or, or cricket or football, but how do we just remain relevant, you know, to our yeah. newer audience and how do we start to integrate them? And how do they even identify that, say, okay, the dads love us, so they drag along the mum and the kid, but they both hate us. So how do we at least make it so the mum and the kid don't kick up a stink when they get dragged along next time? Yeah, absolutely. And you got to, I guess a lot of these people that are having these conversations have, could be like a 15-year-old son that is smashing Fortnite every night anyway. So they're, yeah. you know, it's part of their world now as well. And yeah. I've, you know, I've definitely found that a lot when talking to, you know, different brands in particular or marketing managers these days is that they can kind of resonate a bit more because they do have that 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 kid that is you know you know playing Fortnite or mm. could be COD whatever it might be that you know they're playing they're playing every night and they're on the headset talking to people all around Australia and it kind of you know if you you spoke about that five years ago they would probably think it's weird but now they they obviously understand it so I think it's starting to cut through a lot further now as well. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot to think about. <laughs> yeah. The traditional sports thing, I think, is something that a lot of people are talking about but not thinking when they give their answers, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of the time, you know, this used to happen with investors and doesn't happen to me now where every single time an investor would come to me and say, I want to buy an esports team. 
and then usually I'd convince them not to because it's not the best thing for them. And similar with the traditional sports teams, a lot of the time they come in and say, how do we buy a team? And it's just not always the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, you got to be selective with, with what your, your goal is as well. And I think, you know, I do have a little bit of insight, I guess, on the you know, the sporting landscape as well that, you know, not a lot of the clubs actually make, make a lot of money. Mm. So, you know, they don't have that extra couple mil to throw around or whatever it might be to mm. operate another team that, you know, will take a lot of time and effort as well. So that's another thing to consider. So Yeah, and I guess it's worth um, understanding too for traditional sports like esports that it's a lot of money in, but it's also a lot of money out. You know, yeah. if you're paying Ronaldo a 4 million euro transfer fee or something ridiculous like that, you've got to sell a lot more sponsorship to get that to come in. And sure that if you're a traditional sporting body in Australia, you know, people might say, oh, wow, this guy's on a – you know, this guy just signed across a $2 million sponsorship. Well, they're paying how many people to come along? You know, I watched a video on the NFL recently and they charter a whole 747 just to come to one single game. Yeah, well. Like the cost behind that is ridiculous. They're bringing 40 plus support staff plus their team of 16 plus reserves. Yeah, and that's crazy. just flights is they're yeah. spending millions of dollars a year, let alone paying the minimum wage salary just for the water boy to carry that or for the, you know, the trainee kind of physiotherapist to help these guys out, let alone the 3 million plus salaries that the big guys are getting paid to compete yeah absolutely and like i said before you know the sports landscape here in particular is very oversaturated so Mm. you know it's it's obviously a bit it's spread a bit more thinly so Mm. yeah obviously i think it comes down to what what sits right for those um sporting codes or clubs or you know foundations as well such as like big bash yeah exactly so wrapping this up a little bit i want to ask you as a startup fan in esports what keeps you up at night what's your main worries everything (laughs) (laughs) i i guess yeah i it's it's obviously I'm a big Gary V fan as well, and I think you are as well from mm. memory. Um, yeah, I think he uses the term firefighter. He sees himself as a firefighter, and I think I kind of see myself in the same kind of view. Um, mm. What keeps me up at night? Obviously, yeah, putting out fires if I need to, but I guess I'm always thinking about um, how I can grow the business, thinking outside the box. I might think of an idea at 3 a.m. in the morning, um, put it on my phone in a, in a set of notes, and then read it again at 7am and hope that it was a good idea but I'm always thinking outside the box about what's next and what's looked forward to and I think like I said taking stock of what works overseas and what works in traditional markets that could be applied to our market so just thinking in general keeps me up that and a a 16 month old so yeah yeah yeah. both don't help in that aspect no especially when they've been sick the last couple of weeks a bit rough oh good and what's uh what's coming up next for Icon and Chiefs that you can talk about anything coming up in the immediate future um, I think, I think for us, uh, you know, we, we made, made a, a call out in terms of like our direction for, for Icon, which will be focusing on, you know, a lot of grassroots stuff. So mm-hmm. that's obviously very much in the pipeline as to what we want to execute on. Um, there's a lot of, uh, different IPs that we're talking to at the moment that are, are quite exciting in terms of, you know, integrating them into the space. Um, obviously on the Chiefs front, you know, we want to win the OPL this year. So, and get across the world. So mm-hmm. obviously, you know, performance in our teams is going to be a big part of that. And, you know, hopefully as we scale, you know, jump into a, a few more titles and, um, yeah, just keep on kicking goals. And if you could give any one piece of advice to someone who might be looking to start their own esports team today, they're in school, they want to scale up over a period of time, what what would it be? Um, make sure that you're passionate about the space uh, and coming with a business plan uh, and what you want to achieve. So you might want to just be one of those online presence, you know, on, on cyber gamer where you're picking up, you know, you know, the grassroots teams, mm-hmm. or if you've got aspirations to be, 
you know, a bigger org that's playing on the big stages and has the best teams. What does that look like from a practicality point of view, um, capital point of view and an actual business point of view? So I guess really assessing what you want to get out of the situation uh, and your business coming into the space. So actually having a plan as opposed to, you know, jumping online, registering a name and then purchasing some graphics. So I think mm. um, really taking stock of what you want to achieve out of the outcome should be first step in particular. Yeah, I think that's good advice. It, it really hit home with me the other day when um, I got invited to like another Facebook page and I find a lot of the time the Facebook page and the logo is made before the business plan. Yeah. yeah and that's a, I think that's esports in a nutshell for some sometimes as well because it's very mm. easy to get online and get some cheap graphics and start something without an actual plan. So, yeah, definitely one of my the, my biggest sets of advice. Yeah, 100%. Well, thanks for coming along today. It's been a great chat. We covered so many different topics and it's good to get, I guess, a bit more of a raw outlook from someone because a lot of the time people are a bit buttoned up in podcasts and such. But yeah. I know that you're always a bit more, maybe not so much like an Albert from Mind Freak, but uh, you're always, yeah, someone who can say it a bit more like it is, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's, it, it doesn't make sense to lie about some certain situations. Good to be honest, so... Yeah, happy to be here. Awesome. Thank you. And thanks for listening into the Big Esports Podcast. This has been episode number 48 with Nick from Icon and Chiefs. If you want to see any of the show notes from today or see any links to Nick or anybody else or things that we've talked about, you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash 48. That's the number 48. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg.